I believe business is the greatest platform for change. I, I believe that CEOs really have an opportunity using their businesses to improve society. And that could be directly uh, making a commentary to politicians or um, uh, building great products or making sure that their companies are net zero. I think in all of those cases, business are improving the state of the world. That's Mark Benioff, billionaire CEO of the cloud computing company Salesforce, speaking in an interview last year shown at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Benioff is an evangelist for a concept known as stakeholder capitalism, the notion that corporate executives have an obligation to not just do what's best for its shareholders, the folks who bought the stock and reaped the dividends, but for all its stakeholders, including the company's workers, its consumers, its suppliers, and more broadly, society at large. It's positioned Benioff as that most admirable of characters at the annual Davos retreat, a progressive CEO committed to ending climate change, promoting diversity, and otherwise making the world a better place. But according to Peter Goodman, the New York Times global economic correspondent and author of the new book Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, it's all a charade. Billionaires like Benioff fly off to the Swiss retreat every year on their private jets, hobnob with their fellow billionaires at fancy cocktail parties thrown by giant consulting firms, attend meditation seminars, and otherwise stroke themselves on their virtue and brilliance, all the while pushing and helping to shape a world economic order that, while making all of them much richer, has exacerbated world poverty, thrown millions out of work, and contributed to new levels of global inequality. We'll talk to Goodman about his book and why he thinks Davos Man is a blight on humanity on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I don't know about you guys, but I've never been invited to Davos. I uh, never had an opportunity to see all these um, billionaires hobnobbing with each other and patting themselves on the back. But I got to say, after reading Goodman's book, I'm not sure I want an invite to hear any of these people offering their insights into the world, but I do think we should all take some time to grapple with the arguments he's making here that the glorification of the folks at Davos is actually a bad thing for our world, not a good thing. Yeah, I don't think anyone would confuse you, Isakoff, for <laughs> Davos man. <laughs> right. I'd never make it in the door. <laughs> Although it, it would make like a great documentary just to sort of watch you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking give me, around give me a camera Davos, and a microphone. Nibbling and on canapes. <laughs> yeah. Eating the and, truffles. What yeah. is that, is that, that, that scene in that Tom Hanks story where he tries to eat the corn on the tiny, the miniature corn on the cob? I can sort of see Mike, Mike doing that, right? In all big, right, all right. right. Enough <laughs> about me. We're, we have serious issues to talk about here. Yeah. It's a scorching book. I mean, he doesn't... Um, you know, hold back. Hold back at all. <laughs> it is by turns kind of funny with uh, comical details and just full of 
vengeful anger about what Davos man has done. Yeah, I, I love the, you know, where he talks about the billionaires who would engage in simulations of the Syrian refugee experience led around in the dark while blindfolded as uh, angry officials demanded papers before they all go off to savor truffles at the dinners thrown by. Yeah, well, banks. that's what's yeah. fun. That's what's kind of fun about the book is that he really does portray the hypocrisy and the kind of self-congratulatory, you know, culture among these Davos men. They, they really seem to think that they are the kind of moral saviors of the world and totally unreflective about the impact that they've actually had on most of the world, which is hardly saving anyone. But uh, before we get to Goodman and Davos, a couple of um, January 6th stories uh, I I would like to address in our uh, opening talk here. One is, and I was was thinking about this because I was on CNN the other night, in which I wasn't saying what they wanted me to say, which is why I probably don't get invited as much as I used to. If you have to stick Were with the talking points. you Mike? I, um, <laughs> yeah, a bit. No, it, look, they wanted me to talk about the uh, this draft executive order that Politico came up with. Well, they didn't uh, come up with. They well, got they a found a copy of. <laughs> they just they got a copy of. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. We don't actually even know who wrote it. It's dis- dated December sixteenth, twenty twenty. Presidential findings to preserve, collect, analyze national security information regarding the twenty twenty general election. It basically was an, a draft executive order for a declaration of you know, in effect, martial law that would direct the Defense Department to seize all the voting machines around the country for an audit to uncover the supposed fraud that had taken place. It starts out talking about uh, I, Donald Trump, citing evidence of, quote, international and foreign interference in the November 3rd uh, election, and then goes out to talk about how Dominion voting systems and related companies were old and heavily controlled and influenced by foreign agents, countries, and interests. Pure nuttiness, Right. I mean, there was like no basis for any of this. But clearly, this is something the, uh, the the crazies in the in the Trump orbit had cooked up. But my point was, this was so absurd that there was no way that any of this could happen. First of all, General Milley and the Joint Chiefs had made clear they would never go along with this sort of thing. There was nobody left, no government lawyer left who would give any kind of legal cover to this sort of thing. Remember, other than the acting assistant attorney general who, uh, for the civil division who Trump was trying to put in in charge of the Justice Department. And, well, well uh, I mean, yeah. Bill Barr was still there. He, he no, wouldn't... No, no. December 16th, that's right. about when he leaves. No, he, he yeah. left on the 23rd. He, he, 23rd. he announced okay. his resignation. Look, he uh, he was not going to give this uh, there was no by, There was no but, So there was no way this was going to happen. And I don't know. I just, you know, I think we should retain a, a certain amount of perspective. Yes, 100%. But it's still something it's, that ought to be... It's chilling to see yeah, it in it, writing. It ought to be looked at. That there people actually wanna, thinking yeah, about you, it. You want to yes. understand you know, what all of these people were doing in that time. And um, it's part of the story. It doesn't it doesn't have to be overemphasized, but it is part of the story. 
Can I just add, I don't think you can, on the one hand, Mike, you're right. The, 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 it's, it's pretty clear that this was this order was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, that there was like, n there was no one legit in the administration who was going to take it into effect, yet still there clearly were elements within the administration and there were people outside of the administration who believed that they had an open door to present this. Right. And when they presented this totally crazy idea, they thought, whoever the person, whoever was the author of this was, thought that they had a happy audience with the president of the United States. And by the way, at least based on Politico's reporting, whoever put this together, this was not, you know, like the kibitzers, you know, Rudy Giuliani and, you know, Powell and Flynn. Uh, these are actually people in the government at pretty high levels. Well, the do reason we know I, that? Well, here's the reason, here's the reason I think that, that this is likely, because according to Politico, it makes reference to two highly classified national security presidential memoranda, 13 and 21. And one of those had never been reported on before. 13 did exist. So someone knew about uh, this highly classified national security memorandum and cited it in this executive order. So that suggests that somebody who right. had... And I do think it is important. And there's a good suspect for that, Cash Patel, who was, you know, Trump put in as chief of staff at the Defense Department. You know, a form, the former top Devin Nunes aide who was um, driving a lot of what Nunes was up to. Right. Um, I mean, so yeah. he would have had access to this, and he was there. Let's also not forget that the. Trump administration has a history of issuing executive orders without it going through normal channels. It's exactly what they did at the very beginning of the administration when they issued the travel ban, not running it through DOJ, not running it through any good lawyers. It, it's just not out of the question that Trump would have just signed this thing if someone had put it on his paper and then provoked, if not DOD actually seizing the machines, certainly would have provoked right. a constitutional crisis people in the streets rioting? And, I mean, yeah. the Supreme Court would have overturned this in a nanosecond. I mean, there would have been absolutely no, I don't know who even would have argued the president's case uh, to the Supreme well, Court. Because yes, remember, you know, Richard Donahue, the deputy attorney general, had called all this pure insanity. There was nobody in the intelligence community, no professional who was going to provide the evidence of foreign interference in the election that could have been presented to the court. So so look, the bottom line is, if Trump thought he could have gotten away with this, yeah, he would have signed it. But it was clear even to Trump with, you know, complete opposition from his entire upper echelon Justice Department, his own White House counsel, his military, that there was just no way he could have done it. And to it. your point about um, no credible lawyer signing off on yeah. this, your colleague, Victoria at the Brennan Center uh, for Justice, you may have to correct me on the pronunciation of her name. Is it Liza uh, Goitin? Perfect. Liza <laughs> Goitin, this is what she said about the draft. This draft order represents not only an abuse of emergency powers, but a total misunderstanding of them. She says, it's the legal equivalent of a kid scrawling on the wall with crayons. <laughs> Except that the kid had access to a classified yeah. national security. Yes, yeah. 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 exactly. Right. And is the commander in chief of the military. And just to put a, a, another point on something that, that Liza said, which is to remember that this memo really deals with presidential emergency powers, which are vast 
and which are frightening and which Congress has taken since January 6th and since the kind of tumultuous times of late 2020, Congress has made no effort to reform presidential emergency powers like they were looking at invoking in 2020. And it is a, you know, I I don't want to be extreme about it, but it's a ticking time bomb, these powers that are so unconstrained. Yeah, but let's remember the Truman steel seizure case where the Supreme Court blocked it. And I think that is the template for what would have would have happened here. But one other From your um, lips to God's ears or to the Supreme Court's ears, <laughs> no. Mike, right? It's just you know, who wants to, who wants to roll the dice with that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um hey, one other uh, just uh, item quickly mentioning, uh, worth mentioning here. Uh we talked a moment ago about uh William Barr, the former Attorney General. Apparently, A, he's got a book coming out in early March, and B, there reports he's now talking to, I don't know if the right word is cooperating, but at least talking to the January 6th committee, all of which means um, we need to get him on skullduggery. Are we asking our audience to begin the, uh, yeah, the, ca- yeah, the campaign? Yeah, yeah, to- yeah. You know, I'm, it may be that uh, General Barr might be listening uh, right now. He might be a subscriber yeah. to skullduggery, in which case, uh, open invitation, General, to... Um, to come on the show, uh, we got a lot. Well, what what we'd kind love of to talk to you about? Do you think he'll be uh, for the January sixth <laughs> committee? Because I don't know. I'm thinking uh, I would, uh, if I were Donald Trump, I'd be nervous about a guy who both, you know, has a reputation that he may want to rehabilitate from a tough couple of years, a uh, few years in the Trump administration, um, and who's hawking a book. Yeah, well, I think Barr is the, you know to use the the possibly podcast say for a D N G A F uh, phase of his life. Mike, that does not give a fuck. Right? Okay. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, was, uh, yeah. I, I think the guy's just like, yeah, I don't think he uh-huh. does. I think it'll be interesting dynamic, uh-huh. though, because I think, you know, some of the members of the committee, if they if this ever goes to public hearings and, you know, talk about from my lips to God's ears, that's what we need most at this point. Enough of the leaks and the letters. Let's have those public hearings and see these witnesses and hear them testify. But you know, it's going to be interesting and dynamic because you know that Schiff and Raskin and those folks despise Bill Barr. They blame him for sabotaging the Russia investigation, for, you know, politicizing the Justice Department. And, I think the feeling is mutual, by the and way. And the feeling is mutual. So on the one hand, you have a potentially cooperating witness with really valuable things to say about his interactions with Donald Trump when he told him his claims of election fraud were bullshit. And on the other hand, you got a guy who most of the Democrats on the committee have nothing but contempt for. So It'll be an interesting public hearing if we. By the way, to see uh, it. one more one more development uh, in a case that we have talked a lot about mm-hmm. on this podcast, and I think we'll continue to. Um, we talked uh, last week about how Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, who's been investigating that January second uh, phone call from Trump to uh, the Secretary of State down there, Brad Rapsenberger, had asked the Fulton County Superior Court to approve the impaneling of a special grand jury uh, in that case. And that uh, has just happened. A majority of the Fulton County Superior Court has has just done so. And uh, that means that I think fairly soon we'll start seeing subpoenas flying um, and uh, witnesses going before that grand jury, including the aforementioned uh, Brad Rapsenberger. This grand jury can't indict 
but it can continue to investigate and issue subpoenas. And then I guess it would go to another existing grand jury for, for indictments if that's the way that she decides to go. Can I just say, just like just like Barr appearing before Schiff, Raffensperger appearing before this grand jury is similarly fraught, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but we'll never get to Exa- see exactly. that. Exactly, but right. it, but what's what's important yeah. to notice is that you know Raffensperger probably aware of all of this, and the star witness, essentially one of the star witnesses, if not the star witness to this grand jury, appeared on Fox News last week and accused Fannie Willis of, quote, trying to score some cheap political points with her Democrat friends. So he's not exactly the most willing witness, but I think Brad Raffensperger could be accused of trying to score some cheap points uh, with um, Fox News viewers because he's running with Georgia for, primary for, you know, Republican for, primary voters. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. He's, he's he's running, running for, uh, re-election for re-election and he's against running the against the a current a sitting member of Congress from Georgia, uh, Jody Heiss who is, has been endorsed by Donald uh, By the Trump. way, speaking of other Georgia politicians, the other Fox News appearance by a Georgia politician this weekend was Newt Gingrich, who, amongst other things, essentially threatened members of the January 6th committee with imprisonment after the Republicans take over the House next year. So... <laughs> I, I thought the Congress doesn't have law enforcement powers. Isn't that? I mean, what I don't know. It's, it's just like, but it's, it's theme. But Mike, it's here, here's the arguing? thing. It's just yeah. like the silly emergency order that Trump had on his desk. It's it's ludicrous on its face. Yet the fact that people are saying this is genuinely frightening to 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 say it out loud. You know. And uh, Liz Cheney had a pretty uh, tart retort to uh, the former speaker's uh, comments on Twitter, which was a former speaker of the House is threatening jail time for members of Congress who are investigating the violent January 6th attack on our Capitol and our Constitution. This is what it looks like when the rule of law unravels. Yeah, okay. One final point on Georgia, and I think I'm going to make this a a standard point we make every time we bring this up in that uh, Georgia investigation that Fannie Willis is uh, is leading. The uh, crimes that she's investigating uh, include corruptly trying to influence election officials and racketeering, both of which under Georgia law, if upon conviction, call for mandatory minimum sentences. So as we speak here in January 2022, it is possible that Donald Trump runs again for office and is living in the White House after uh, the 2024 election. But it's also just as possible that he's in a Georgia state penitentiary serving a mandatory minimum sentence. So I just throw that out there. Anyway, we got our guest to talk about Davos Man. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Peter Goodman, the global economics correspondent for the New York Times and author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Peter, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, congrats on the book. Important subject. I guess I'd like to just start out by the whole concept of Davos Man, who these people are. Obviously, folks of fantastic wealth, you've had the uh, 
good fortune, I suppose, of being able to observe them in Davos over the in years. In the wild. Yeah, in the wild. I, I mean, I love some of your descriptions of what it's like at Davos, but why don't you tell us like, who these people are and what they do when they go every year, as they do, to this retreat in the Swiss Alps? Sure. Thanks for that. So first of all, Davos Man was this term that uh, Samuel Huntington came up with in 2004 to refer to people who go to the top of the mountain in Switzerland, Davos every year to attend the World Economic Forum. But it's really become this broader catch-all that refers to people who are so wealthy, their wealth so complex that it stretches across multiple jurisdictions. They don't really have any allegiance to any particular place. I mean, they've got their own jets and their own islands and they own residences the way most of us own socks. I mean, I use it and I'm giving you this sort of taxonomy of Davos man to identify people who are not only super rich, but pushing this idea that they are our saviors, that the world should be organized so that they are catered to, and then through the magic of trickle-down economics, you know, something that has happened in real life zero times, we will all benefit. And what they do in Davos is pursue supposed win-win solutions to everything. So let me just step back and say the World Economic Forum is most simply a bunch of earnest seminars about all of the sorts of things one might expect, climate change, gender equality, new modes of corporate governance. Now, the cool kids at Davos, the actual Davos men, the billionaires and their acolytes, they will tell you as a sort of mark of sophistication that they never set foot inside the conference center. They spend all of their time at like the villa that Facebook rents on the main drag. They go to dinner parties hosted by global banks and consulting companies. I mean, I have watched Davos men go into the Congress Center just to go and engage in the simulation of the Syrian refugee experience, you know, wandering in the dark, blindfolded, while someone's shouting at them in a language they don't understand, demanding papers. And then they all congratulate one another for their empathy. And then they go off and eat lobster and truffles and drink champagne, you know, at a dinner hosted by HSBC or Palantir or, or somebody like that. So it's, it's really, you know, the forum itself is this kind of elaborate charade that invites participants to feel good about themselves and to present themselves as being on the right side of history, which then essentially, even if we see through that charade, armors them to go home and do what they actually do, which is kill off any attempts to redistribute their wealth. Well, I want to talk about that, but I just love some of your descriptions of what you observe in Davos, man. You mentioned the simulations of Syrian refugee experience before they go off to eat their truffles. Some of your other examples, outside conference rooms featuring discussions on human trafficking. I watched venture capitalists fist pumping over having scored invites to the Bacchanal thrown by a Russian oligarch who flew in prostitutes from Moscow. Pharmaceutical industry began executives began their mornings in meditation sessions led by mindfulness guru John Gabbett Zinn before retiring to private suites to plot their next merger engineered toward lifting drug prices. Yeah, thanks for underscoring that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, these guys are engaged in this, you know, let's pretend that we're all here very earnestly trying to explore the problems of the day. And, you know, I remember going to a, uh, a gathering of uh, drug executives, pharmaceutical executives several years ago. This was right around the time that there were some serious price gouging cases that were capturing attention. And, you know, they had this very earnest discussion on why are drug prices so unaffordable? And they all went around the room like a pine. Well, you know, maybe it's because we haven't come up with the right business model yet. Well, maybe we need to try harder to be more inclusive. And, you know, it's something we're studying as if that it's all this kind of mystery as to why inequality exists, which sets up this idea that if you're there, you've identified yourself as virtuous. I mean, the whole thing proceeds under the mantra committed to improving the state of the world, which is this wonderful phrase, considering that this is a gathering of the greatest beneficiaries of the world as it is. And they unleash lobbyists and accountants to keep it that way and make it more that way. So that hypocrisy and and self-aggrandizement, I mean, it's really obnoxious. But is it more pernicious? I mean, if they if they weren't hypocrites and were doing the same kinds of things, you know, would that make them just as bad or explain? I mean, because that really gets under your skin. You can tell in the writing of the book. And it sure. is very obnoxious. But just ex- I want to I want to understand how that kind of patina of we're on a moral mission here. We want to make the world a better place makes things actually makes things worse if it does. Well, because I mean, as I argue in the book, we live in a world that is basically organized around the the idea that we shouldn't mess with Davos man and his monopoly profits. I mean, take a look at vaccines, right? So we're having this conversation in the midst of dealing with the Omicron variant. Now, we should be thankful that Pfizer and Moderna and the other pharmaceutical companies have taken their tremendous research capacities and their innovation. They've come up with vaccines at record time. But by the way, none of us are paying for, right? They're free. Uh, well, in a sense, right? I, I mean, I'd argue we're paying for them in all sorts of ways, right? And one of the ways is through the Omicron variant and, you know, the destruction of our kids' education and the continued fear and the death and the hits to our livelihoods. I mean, why? who decided that Pfizer and Moderna should be able to take, in many cases, publicly financed research and then take the finished wares and sell them around the globe only to the highest bidder, such that, you know, you have frontline medical workers in parts of Africa and South Asia who have no protection whatsoever. I mean, that's a humanitarian catastrophe, right? But it's also a catastrophe from the purely selfish standpoint that we'd all like to get on with our lives in wealthy countries. And that kind of thinking is not by accident, right? I mean, what they sell effectively, it may be a cartoon that these guys are meditating in the morning and doing, you know, pharma mergers in the afternoon. Okay, that part we can all see through. But the fundamental idea that we need to count on the billionaires to you know, take care of life's problems, that's baked into our political discourse in many ways. I mean, last year in Davos, this is in January of 2020, Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, says you know, CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic, not frontline medical workers, not essential workers giving us food, delivering packages, whatever. He... And his fellow CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic because of vaccines, because of finance, staving off bankruptcy. And, you know, this 
engenders no opposition on the panel. Larry Fink, who's the world's uh, largest asset manager, controls $10 trillion, is also a champion of this thing known as stakeholder capitalism, the idea that you know the ideas of Milton Friedman are behind us with shareholders just maximizing profit. Now we can count, we can essentially outsource the solutions to huge problems, climate change, work-life balance, inadequate wages. We can count on the billionaires to do the right thing. Davos might be a cartoon, but the central idea of win-win solutions, no one has to sacrifice. This is basically how we've organized our economy for 50 years. So Davos man peddles what you call in the book, the cosmic lie. I'm wondering if you will unpack for us what exactly that is. Sure. You know, that was originally the big lie, but I had to change that when something happened. <laughs> it got taken. Uh, yeah, yeah. The that. copyright was yeah. taken on yeah, that so one. I went big, yeah. yeah, cosmic right. lie. You know, the cosmic lie is this idea that in our country goes back to Reagan, that if you cut taxes for rich people, if you get the government out of the way, then entrepreneurs can do what they do, the result will be tremendous economic growth, and the benefits will trickle down to everyone, something that has in reality happened zero times, uh, but that in reality drives most of our policies. So we convince ourselves you know, that we can't possibly afford things like healthcare, we can't afford programs for people who need help with housing, but we can always seem to afford tax cuts for billionaires like the ones that Trump gave us in, in 2017. And that idea is central to you know what people like Benioff and Larry Fink are saying when they posit themselves as the heroes. They're essentially saying, well, you know, we don't need government. I mean, we can just count on the largesse of billionaires between philanthropy and the and the magic of trickle down, our problems will be solved. So you mentioned Benioff, who's an interesting character. He's actually the first Davos man you're quoting in the book. And I have a feeling if he was here, he'd probably take exception to how you're characterizing his political perspective, because he's a San Francisco progressive, you know, uh, famously used his company to push back against the Indiana anti-LGBT law, spoken out for voting rights. He, he, he favors all sorts of progressive goals and solutions that are not simply, you know, that don't seem to square exactly with, you know, your characterization of, you know, Davos men just want to lower their taxes and become richer. So you're suggesting that it is a charade by Benioff and others. Why? Why are they lying to us? Are they lying to themselves? And how do you square what they publicly say about their progressive goals? Uh, I should mention climate change is another big one both Larry Fink and Mark Benioff would, would talk about with the way you're describing what their real mission in life. Well, first of all, you're right. I mean, Benioff is a really interesting and complex character because he's serious about philanthropy. You know, he claims that the inspiration for his company came when he took a sabbatical to Southern India, when he was sort of dealing with this existential crisis while a young executive at Oracle. And he met a woman known as the Hugging Saint, who gave him a hug and said, you need to make a fortune and then give back to society. And this he tells us and he'll tell you the story anytime you like, was the inspiration for his company. He does If donate. we had only all been hugged like that, we, we would have on this show gone into a different profession, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 1% of his revenues, 1% of his staff time, 
indeed devoted to a whole bunch of philanthropic causes. He did take a stand on that Indiana law that you point out. He's taken on Google and Facebook and Twitter uh, in terms of data privacy. He's not easily stuck in this box, but here's a guy who not once but twice has figured out how to have his company pay the modest sum of zero on his federal taxes while he's earning billions of dollars in revenue. Now, he'll tell you at great length about how he, he kicked in $10 million for this ballot initiative in San Francisco to tax tech companies to increase services for homeless people. He will tell you at great length about how during the worst of the pandemic, he, or rather the first wave of the pandemic, he pulled strings in China, secured 50 million pieces of PPE, flew them back to the States, delivered them to frontline medical workers. Hey, I'm willing to acknowledge that that was great, and it probably saved people's lives. But we still got to ask, why are we depending upon the largesse of a tech bro in Silicon Valley to outfit our frontline medical workers in the richest, most powerful country on earth? And what good is $10 million in taxes for homeless services if you're your company, which benefits from, you know, the public largesse through, you know, universities that train people who work at your company, the internet, the electrical grid, if you're not paying any taxes, and he's part of the business roundtable, and the US Chamber of Commerce, both of which lobby for tax cuts and deregulation, and he actually celebrated the impact of the Trump tax cuts in goosing his sales. So it's a complex record. It's not, you know, he's not some sort of comic book villain. I actually really liked him when I talked to him and I found him, you know, really quite appealing and interesting. But at the end of the day, this guy who uses the whole like bohemian Silicon Valley talk, who flies his executives out to Hawaii to hold hands in the surf and has blessing ceremonies, he's really an enabler of the status quo. He's not sort of disruptor. It, it, this isn't change. This is an enabling of the status quo. Peter, you argue that the, the kind of engineering and rigging uh, of the economy done by these Davos men had as much to do with the rise of right-wing populism as any, anything else, uh, right. which is fascinating. W what's your argument? Explain that. So, you know, I started writing this book when I was living in London, and I, I'd been there through Brexit, and I was writing about the Trump trade war globally, spent time in Italy while the right was rising. I even went to Sweden, where a party that has its roots in the neo-Nazi movement became, you know, mainstream in the course of just a couple of years. And what I saw in every one of these cases, you know, on the surface, there's this reaction usually to immigrants, right? So, in the States, Trump you know, has us fear China as an economic menace. He has us fear immigrants coming over the border from Mexico and Central America. In Sweden, there's this huge influx of Syrian and Afghan and Somali refugees. But if you dig below the reaction, there's this decades of systematic pillaging by the billionaires, a dismantling of public infrastructure, a limiting of social programs with the proceeds you know, transferred neatly to themselves. And you have huge numbers of people in all of these societies who are suffering scarcity. And we don't know how that force plays out, but we know that if you have huge numbers of people who legitimately conclude that their economic needs, their ability to support their families is clearly not of all that great import to the people running the country, they are susceptible to political opportunists who will come along and cater to our basis instincts and blame somebody else for their troubles. You know, take Trump and China in the US. Like China is a serious problem in the global trading system. It's, it's complex. We could talk for hours just about China. But the reason why 
manufacturing workers in the U.S. are losing their jobs for 25 bucks an hour and having to go work for Jeff Bezos, you know, in warehouses for half of what they used to make. It's not because of China. It's because Bezos built a machine that has vacuumed all of the profits from our highly successful trading arrangements with China. It's decisions made in boardrooms in New York and Seattle and in Congress and successive presidential administrations. It's not the other you know, boogeyman, but the pattern we see again and again from Italy to Sweden to Brexit to the U.S. is this you know, laying the ground for these right wing political opportunists by the pillaging. So I want to get a little bit more specific about a particular sector that you focus on at towards the end of your book, where we talk not about what Davos man thinks or how Davos man behaves at Davos, but what Davos man has actually done to the healthcare system of the United States. And several of your key characters in your book, I think Jeff Fink and, and maybe Stephen Schwartzman play a role in that. Tell us what Davos man actually did to our healthcare system. Yeah, a great question. So Steve Schwartzman is a primary character. He's the founder of Blackstone, the world's largest private equity company. He's worth about $35 billion. He has a nose for wherever money is moving and wherever there's an opportunity. He's a brilliant investor by all accounts. Made a fortune after the foreclosure crisis in the States during the Great Recession. So he and other investors notice that Americans are spending $3 trillion a year on healthcare and decide maybe we could get in on that. In 2016, he plunks down $6 billion for a company called Team Health. This is a company that supplies staff to emergency rooms in hospitals. Now, a casino magnate will tell you that you make money by having people drinking in darkened rooms where they have no idea what's going on and they lose sight of their senses. Schwartzman and other investors understand that the emergency room is a particularly lucrative place because people being wheeled in on gurneys are not really of the mind to read the fine print or inquire about the niceties of their health insurance policies. So he and others engage, according to a series of lawsuits, in this practice of surprise billing, where you show up, you think you're at a hospital that's in your network, and guess what? A couple months later, you're hearing from collection agents, actually, you're having to pay you know, eight times as much as Medicare would have charged for simple procedures. You've been given all these unnecessary tests. So the result of this, this whole wave of investment in healthcare is to turn healthcare into an industry that operates not a whole lot differently from you know, airlines or fast food. It's all inventory and customers and costs to be contained. In the same way that the airline wants every seat taken, the healthcare industry wants hospitals full. And this is why in the 20 years before the pandemic, the US loses roughly a third of its hospital rooms. And this is why the people working inside emergency rooms in particular, but really throughout healthcare, find themselves treated like costs to be contained, why we don't have enough nurses. It's not that we have a shortage, it's that we've run out of people who are willing to accept the bargain of working in impossible situations. And and I, I, I tell the story of this guy, Ming Lin. This is an emergency room doctor who was working for Blackstone company team health at a hospital in Bellingham, Washington. And, you know, early in the pandemic, he starts asking, how come there's nobody wearing face masks as the reception counter? Why don't we have a triage system? Why are we continuing to have patients come in for elective surgeries when we really should be on an emergency footing? And he complains to his supervisors and they essentially tell him, look, you know, uh, the hospitals are client. Uh, team health is making its money by keeping the hospital happy. And the 
hospital makes a huge amount of money on elective surgeries. We don't want to spook people by having them wear face masks. He eventually takes to Facebook to protest and he is fired. I mean, this guy, he's a whistleblower at the beginning of the pandemic and he's fired for challenging the profit-making apparatus that is the healthcare industry. So you, you actually argue that, that the business practices of private equity writ large, I mean, not just uh, Schwartzman, uh, made us less prepared to deal with this pandemic when it happened. Yeah, without any question. I mean, we didn't have enough hospital rooms. We didn't have enough ventilators. No, look, it's a once in a century pandemic, right? We weren't going to be celebrating our wonderful preparedness in any scenario. But we're talking about the wealthiest country on earth having had months to prepare. And yeah, we can talk about how, you know, Trump at first acted like this was just a hoax perpetrated on him by the Democrats. We can, as you know, in terms of lack of preparedness, but this is far beyond one politician or political opportunism. We simply didn't have the structure. We were also dependent upon you know, a global supply chain that was, you know, bringing us PPE and basic medicines from places like China, mostly China, but also India. And it was running according to the principles of just in time, right? Like why stuff a warehouse full of PPE that you don't need today when if you're a profit-making company and you're taking advice from somebody like McKinsey, you can take the same dollar and give it to the shareholder and they'll be delighted or give it to yourselves as executive compensation. So, you know, this happened throughout the economy and anybody who wasn't playing by those rules was easy prey for savvy investors like Steve Schwartzman who would come in and pounce and then jack up debt and then cut costs. I mean, we just, you know, I think it's easy, it's fair to say that we don't want our local hospital running the same way like our local McDonald's runs. But that's essentially what we're in here because we've handed it over to Davos, man. You mentioned Bezos before, and uh, it's worth mentioning that some of these characters like him, like Benioff, are also media moguls. Bezos, of course, owns the Washington Post. Uh, Benioff bought Time magazine a year or so ago. So they've got uh, platforms that are truly global uh, in terms of influencing world thinking. But um, I wanted to take you to another part of your argument, which is that a lot of the elimination of jobs in the United States and particularly the sort of you know, hollowing out of middle America is the result of decisions made really starting in the Clinton administration, promoting global trade, uh, trade deals like NAFTA, and that those and other policies that were promulgated not by Trumpian right-wingers, but by, you know, Democratic policymakers in the 1990s shaped and contributed to the inequality that you decry in this book. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, let me just say I'm pro-trade and anybody who thinks about the global economy should be pro-trade. The history of trade is that it produces more wealth it produces export opportunities for domestic companies. It makes things cheaper you know, on the import side. That's all good. But we need to have rules that take the gains of trade and spread them equitably. And we haven't had that. Instead, we've had this kind of Davos man fantasy that we can sell trade, which played a huge role in stabilizing Europe and the transatlantic alliance you know, in the years after World War II. 
And we've perverted it into something that basically just serves the needs of the shareholder class and the billionaires who own most of the shares. You know, take, for instance, China's entry to the WTO in 2001, negotiated by the Clinton administration. People like Bill Clinton, like his Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, argued at the time, like, hey, this isn't about business. You know, this is about democratizing China. You know, we're going to engage with China. And through that, uh, there will be this middle class and the middle class of China will want the same things that every middle class wants. They'll want not only material gains, but they'll want freedom. And so, you know, this has this isn't about dollars. This is really about liberty. I mean, that was nonsense, you know, back in the day. And it was pretty, pretty clear. But now it's really clear. This was about shareholders of publicly traded companies who were always looking for a way to undermine labor, who were always looking for a way to say, if you don't accept our reduced terms of payment, our greater flexibility so that we can tell you when you're going to work, whether you have kids or or elderly relatives to take care of or whatever, you know, well, then we're going to ship your job to Mexico or China, or we'll at least send production there, which will push wages lower. And in addition, we didn't have progressive taxation, we didn't have uh, antitrust enforcement. I mean, the Clinton administration really bought into this idea that like scale is what makes American business great. You know, scale is where innovation comes from. They let it happen in telecom. They let it happen in meat. You know, Tyson, an Arkansas company from Bill Clinton's home state, became enormous. And, and so the world that we're living in today, a world where if you're a shareholder and you own assets, you've enjoyed a wonderful stretch of time. If you have high skills and high education, skills in, in real demand, fantastic opportunities. If you're just about anybody else, we've effectively had a transferring of your wealth up to Davos, man. And, and that, again, that was a failure of policymakers in the United States. So I'm going to guess, based on the tenor of this conversation, that you weren't terribly surprised when the Wall Street Journal's review of your book was negative. <laughs> but I, I wanted to give you a chance to answer some of the sure. uh, criticisms that were raised. So, uh, but tell uh, us the, what the, the criticisms were first. Well, I'm going to uh, yes. <laughs> so, so here we go. So it says they say your conclusions are muddle-headed. For example, you and I'm quoting directly elide the distinction between tax evasion and tax avoidance. Is that, is that a fair criticism? Do you elide the the, uh, the distinction? I don't think that is a fair criticism. I mean, look, I, I know that tax avoidance is legal and tax evasion gets you, in theory, uh, seeing the inside of a penitentiary. But the truth is that there's a huge amount of tax avoidance that would be considered evasion by any you know common sense definition. I mean, the Clinton administration opened up this loophole where you know you can transfer your intellectual property if you're a tech company like Salesforce to somewhere like Ireland and then go charge your U.S. subsidiary for the use of that intellectual property, and you know, voila, you make multiple billions of dollars in revenue just kind of disappear on paper. I mean, that'd be a nice trick if like some Amazon warehouse worker could be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to transfer the ownership of my uh, work boots to uh, Canada. And then I'm going to like charge myself that. And OK, so stop, you know, deducting from my taxes. Like no one else can play that way. Now, that's perfectly legal, right? That's that's tax avoidance. That's not tax evasion. But to the common sense standards that we all live in, that's a perversion of democracy toward evading your taxes. Moreover, Davos Man has effectively uh, starved the, uh, the IRS of resources to even collect what taxes are due. So, I mean, that distinction is pretty well elided in reality. 
It does go to the point that taxes and the the kind of the way the tax system is manipulated is rather central to the point of your book, doesn't it? Isn't oh, for it? sure. For sure. I mean, look, we can't do anything without the government having some money, right? We can't. And without progressive taxation, we're stuck in this situation where people like Steve Schwartzman and Jeff Bezos are paying a smaller percentage of their income to the government than the people who are scrubbing their toilets, which is, you know, never mind the math of how do you just run, how do you take care of infrastructure? How do you run education, public transportation? You know, the, the injustice of that is a source of anger. And I mean, you guys have done some great stuff on your program on the roots of January 6th. Like, I mean, part of it is that people, I mean, it's going to be, a, there will be incohate effects of this, but huge numbers of people have rightfully concluded, like nobody else is sacrificing. Why should I sacrifice? And then they're susceptible to crazy conspiracy theories about what's actually happened to them. So your book also concludes with a series of policy prescriptions that you think would kind of undo some of the impacts of Davos, man. And the Wall Street Journal accuses you of engaging in the same sort of fashionable policy talk one might hear at the World Economic Forum. I'm wondering <laughs> if you would, uh, first of all, maybe just kind of like quickly go through the, the high points that you think really need to be dealt with with Davos, man. But I'm, I'm wondering if you don't possibly take some of that criticism to heart that it's that it's uh, kind of fashionable policy talk. I mean, I suppose it is fashionable in that I see the policies as fairly obvious. They're so obvious that even the World Economic Forum has written voluminous reports. But, you know, as I also say in the book, the problem isn't what the World Economic Forum says publicly. I mean, you could go on their website. They say they have all kinds of wonderful things to say about the need for uh, climate change rules, cap and trade systems, carbon trading. Uh, they're all for, you know, gender equality, racial equality. They're all for new modes of corporate governance. The issue is, you know, it's not about manifestos and statements of purposes of, of a corporation. Like Davos man's great at words. The question is, what is the action? And so, you know, do I cop to the idea that it's fairly simple to know what to do? Yeah, you know, I, I do. The execution is the thing that's difficult. Like we need progressive taxation. We need antitrust enforcement. We need to bolster the power of labor. If you did those three things in a serious way, and good luck, right? Because Davos man's not giving up those privileges without a serious fight. But if you did those three things, we'd accomplish a lot. Well, let's take the taxation one because, you know, it was a year ago, the Biden administration comes into office. They've identified jacking up corporate income tax rates and right. increasing personal income tax rates as a top priority. Right. Here we are a year later. Nothing has passed. Nothing has gone anywhere on that front. And it's not even being highlighted as a major priority right now. Now, other than just blaming it all on Joe Manchin, who I should point out has actually supported increasing tax rates, not as much right. as Biden has proposed, but definitely supporting an increase. How is it that we're nowhere on what you've said is, you know, maybe the most important thing they should be doing on the economic front right now? Because these guys are playing for keeps and they know what they're doing. I mean, Amazon has 100 lobbyists in Washington, D.C. They have the capacity to misinform, confuse. They benefit from confusion. I mean, the more divisiveness, polarization, like all these words we like to throw around in the media, the more that stuff is the conversation the further removed we are from any clarity that's required 
to forge a deal. But also, you know, Davos man is operating in a time in which there is tremendous distrust of elites and authorities. And that part's not irrational. Like take Joe Manchin, right? So, so Joe Manchin, one of the things Joe Manchin's done, one of the ways in which he's opposed Biden's agenda is he said, I don't want you picking on my coal miners, you know, in your, whether you want to call it the Green New Deal, like whatever transition we're going into. I got coal miners in my state. He benefits personally from coal mining. And I'm not giving that up easily. You know, it makes me, Think of a trip I took a couple of years ago in Sweden, where I visited a mining company where the truck drivers were threatened with the loss of their jobs through uh, automated systems. And I remember talking to everybody in that mine, and they all said, yeah, we're fine with it. You know, that's fine, because our lived experience tells us that if our jobs are replaced by automation, and that makes the company more productive, well, we'll be trained for something else. And our wages will go up if the company's making more money. Well, in the U.S., Joe Manchin's not crazy to say, if my coal miners go out of business, there's nothing for them. Nobody's going to train them to go be solar panel installers. This thing is like totally hollow. And, and moreover, labor is like less than 10% of the workforce in the U.S. So labor unions, they're not helping but they're not crazy to say we're going to oppose any change at all because any privilege we give up in the name of like longer term gains that we'll get through adjustment to something important like climate change, we're not going to get back. So that's the situation that Davos man fully understands that people are rightfully afraid of losing whatever piece of the status quo they've got. And that is wielded time and again to, you know, fear monger about the deficit. Oh, we can't afford it. The deficit will hit. Oh, inflation whether it's the supply chain or, or they're blaming it on, you know, too much fiscal relief. It, I, you guys know this better than anybody, right? Like every politician will tell you it's easy to kill a bill. It's very difficult to get a bill passed. And that's something that Davos man understands keenly in protecting himself against redistribution. So Peter, one of the things uh, that I noticed in the book is you, you take some kind of well-aimed shots here and there at the sort of obsequious press that goes to da- the Davos uh, Confab every year. By, for the record, none of us here have ever been invited. Isakoff, right? You've never been. We never, I, made, never, the, no, we never no, made the no. cut. Never got anywhere um, near so, Davos. So, you know, if you, well, detect, an any, right if you detect any bitterness in this question, maybe that's it. But a lot of our bosses over the years did go. Right. Um, you know, when I remember, they would throw parties and, you know, they – were, you know, kind of hobnobbing with everyone there, doing reporting, but not only reporting. The trickle-down theory of media prestige. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just wonder, I mean, do you, is there a kind of, um, I don't know, sort of a, a com- complicitness in, you know, that the press in some ways has spent more time kind of boosting Davos man than exposing him, present company not included here? A thousand percent. Yeah. There's no question that that's true. I mean, Davos man understands access journalism, right? And first of all, there are some journalists are bottom up accountability journalists. Some people gravitate like moths to the flame, right? They like being around famous people. They like being around powerful, rich people. And they have this idea that that's sort of an end in itself. And Davos is full of journalists like that. Because the truth is that if you go to Davos, with kind of an outsider mentality, you actually can learn a lot. Like there's, there is real access. Like, you know, I've just sort of walked up to Jamie Dimon over the years and gotten him to say, you know, kind of interesting things about his views on taxes. I've had off the record conversations that I'm obviously not going to disclose that were actually pretty, 
you know, pretty revealing in terms of helping me understand what was going on. But I, I do think that there's this tendency, and like we see this now with Larry Fink's latest letter, right? Like here's Larry Fink, manages $10 trillion in assets, puts out this letter every year, message to the to uh, fellow CEOs on how to run your company, positioning himself as a force for good on climate change, implicitly threatening that you know the markets will cut you off on, from capital if you don't get with me on stakeholder capitalism, do the right thing. Meanwhile, you know he's sending fifteen billion dollars in capital to Saudi Aramco to build a new natural gas pipeline. He went to so-called Davos in the desert in Saudi Arabia only a couple months after Jamal Khashoggi's horrible demise. This is a guy who, you know, is a huge shareholder in JBS, the Brazilian meatpacking company that's clear-cutting the Amazon. There's sort of a link there to climate change. And as I detail in the book, at a time when he's, he's you know, talking about how the pandemic is making us all one and bringing out, you know, society as a key stakeholder, he's squeezing Argentina in the midst of a horrible crisis where there's homelessness on the rise, hunger on the rise, to pay up on the bonds that he credulously, you know, purchased. So, you know, yet... When Fink releases this letter, he's treated like this oracle, you know, this important rock star. And it's just sort of against the code. It's like impolite to question the people in the room. There was a wonderful moment. You know, you talk about media complicity right after Benioff got uh, bought time. Do you guys remember there was this kind of viral moment where Rutger Bregman, this young Dutch academic who was at Davos for the first time, uh, was at this panel where he was he was talking about taxes. He said, nobody here talks about taxes. You all talk about philanthropy while you're talking about inequality, but it's all taxes. I feel like I'm at a firefighters convention and I'm not allowed to talk about water. Now that clip went viral and everybody saw it, but when nobody bothered to watch that I watched for the book was that Felsenthal then turns to Jane Goodall. Felsenthal is the editor, Ed Felsenthal is the yeah, editor. Edward, Edward Felsenthal. Edward yeah. Felsenthal Edward, editor, editor of Time, of Time Magazine. Magazine now, owned by Benioff. Employee right. of Benioff turns to Jane Goodall, who's an actual naturalist, and says, you know, what is it about us as a species that, you know, we can't solve this somehow? As if it's like, yes, let's let's dig into our how our brains are wired as opposed to let, let's ask the boss why nobody wants to pay any taxes. And this is the ultimate charade that I think the press does fall for again and again, because it's a better story to like assume that everyone in the room is good and we're trading in different conceptions of solutions. As I, I don't think Isakoff would consider that a better story. <laughs> well, no. Isakoff is an accountability guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was just thinking when you talk about media complicity, it's, you know, in part because because of the locale. It's in Davos, in the Swiss Alps. You know, can you imagine if they held this, uh, you know, confab in like Flint, Michigan, you know, how many people would show up, you know, um, right. whether CEOs or reporters. Right. And you want to get invited you know, the next year, too. Right? I'll tell you something. <laughs> yeah. It's an unbelievable pain in the butt at Davos. This is the part that nobody knows. Like, really? Unless you're one of these guys flying in on your own jet. And even then you're sitting in traffic in your Land Rover while you're cursing at your chauffeur or you're like call, you're standing at a snowbank. Where is that guy? And you're calling your office in New York to get there. You know, if you want to simulate Davos, go out to LaGuardia Airport and check in for a shuttle flight 17 times in a day. But it's just unending you know, while you're wearing crampons on your boots. <laughs> 
And yet you go every year. <laughs> Not anymore. I've been okay. 10 times. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I may have All eaten right. my last Davos fondue meal. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, uh, Peter Goodman may be uh, uh, sick of Davos, but his book is uh, actually something everybody should read to try to understand our world economic plight. Uh, it's called Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Peter, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you guys. Thank you.